You know, I just wanted to, um, you know, we've only been a church for a little over a year, and uh, so we're still getting to know each other, you know, as pastors and wives and things like that, and the one thing that I want you to know, in case you don't know it, is um, your pastors and Chris, your worship leader, and their wives uh, love you all dearly, um, and um, I am very thankful that those guys are my pastors, and so... Uh, their hearts are for you, they love you guys, they want the best for you, and so I just wanted to share that with you before we move on this morning. Um, so we're continuing on in the series in Ruth, so turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 5. Okay, you are awake, you are alert. I have to admit that that was a joke that Ray Horman gave me this morning out front. <laughs> he said, I've lost three hours of sleep, so no telling what's coming this morning. But the title of this morning's message, and this is a standalone sermon before we uh, do jump into the Advent season, the title of this morning's message is Serving One Another in Love. Okay, you might be thinking, oh great, it's time for the guilt trip that I need to be serving somewhere. The pastor's going to try to guilt trip me into filling a ministry slot that no one else wants to take. Serving sermons always feel like giving sermons where the pastor pours it on until we're all guilt-tripped into responding. That's one way some pastors like to go, but that's not the way I'm going this morning. This morning, I want you to see the blessing in serving others. You see, I believe that God has placed three distinct longings in every human being's heart. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or you're an unbeliever. Those longings are placed there at birth, and as we grow towards adulthood without even realizing it, we seek to fulfill those longings that often feel like an empty place in our hearts. The world wants us to believe that the void inside us can be filled by what the world has to offer. Possessions, power, position, prestige. So we set out to achieve and only experience fleeting moments of satisfaction, peace, and inner joy. Well, there are some worthwhile goals to find there in those pursuits. Apart from God's purpose for our life, they will always fall short of the life that he's intended for us. God didn't make us to be satisfied by the things of this world. He made us to find deep satisfaction and filling from the things of God, which leads us back to those three longings that I'm talking about. And the first one is transcendence, the inner longing to connect with God in a life-transforming relationship, out of which we find our identity, meaning, and purpose all emanating from our relationship with Him. You see, the first and most important thing God desires of you is you. He wants you first, not your good works. A.W. Tozier wrote, The whole outlook of mankind might be changed if we could all believe that we dwell under a friendly sky and that the God of heaven, though exalted in power and majesty, is eager to be friends with you. Do you get that this morning? God desires to be a friend with you. The second longing that he's placed in each of us is the inner longing to connect with other people in life-transforming community, to be part of a group of people who you share life with, a place where you're accepted for who you are, where you can know and be known, where you can love and be loved, where you can care and be cared for, and people who you can partner with in serving someone in something that is so much bigger than you and your pursuits. That leads us to the third longing that resides in each of us, and that's significance. The inner longing to connect with your God-given purpose in life. 
to live for something bigger than yourself, to find meaning and purpose as you love and serve others for his kingdom, the desire to make my life count, and to leave an eternal legacy behind. All three longings are intimately connected to each other, and honestly, one cannot be truly found and experienced apart from the others. The three together make up the essence of the Christian life. They are to be a way of life for each and every one of us. All three can only be fully realized when you are living in community with other like-minded people. There really is no such thing as a thriving Lone Ranger Christian. I believe to the degree that a person seeks to live for these three longings by the means God has given is to the degree that they will experience the life to the full that Jesus promises. If one, is, if one of those longings is short-circuited, the others will be as well. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. For the Christian, this is the picture of the daily spiritual warfare that we are engaged in. You have a God who wants you to have life to the full by pursuing these three longings and make those three longings your life, the essence of your life, the life that you live. And you have an enemy who's opposed to that and standing against that and wants to steal and kill and destroy and short-circuit those longings in your heart. Finding victory against the devil's attempts to steal, kill, and destroy the full life God has planned for you. It's his goal to sever your connection with God, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and your kingdom service. Think about your life for a moment. How connected have you been to transcendence, to belonging, and to significance as your pursuits in life? Is the devil winning the war right now over your life? This leads us to our main text this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and I'll be reading from the CSB version. And before we look at the first verse there, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, what an awesome privilege it is to represent you, um, to bring your word to your people. Father, I pray that um, you would become greater and that I would become less. Uh, that your word would proceed through me and touch the hearts of people here, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you knowing where each person is as they sit here, that you would minister your word to right where they're at. And Father, help them to see what it is that you want to do in their lives, how much you love them, how much you want them more than anything else, and cause the knowledge of your love for them and the relationship you desire with them to compel them, Lord, to want to live for you and to serve you and to serve others. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and read Romans 12, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And we know that that word, therefore, which starts the first verse of this text, it's always put there at the beginning of a verse to note that it is a connector word the writer is using to give you a reason for what he's about to say by pointing back 
to what he previously said. In this case, Paul is pointing back to the first 11 chapters of Romans that have revealed the full extent of God's mercies towards you and me. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul reveals our problem of sin that separates us from a holy God, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In chapters 4 through 5, Paul reveals God's solution, his plan of redemption, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In chapters 6 through 8, Paul gives us the solution that though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then chapters 9 through 11, Paul points us to a God who is faithful to his promises, and he ends chapter 11 with this hymn of praise. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The therefore that we're starting out here in chapter 12 are all those things that he just outlined. The wonderful mercies of God that he's offered to each one of us in Christ. God's mercy is him removing the just penalty and punishment we deserve for our sin. It's God declaring that we're not guilty, that we are justified in his sight because of what Jesus has done for us in our place. It's not by any of your works or any of your good deeds or any of your pursuits of religious activities. It's by his grace through faith in Christ. It's the finished work of the cross. It's what he's done and accomplished for you. And by your faith in Christ, those mercies are yours forever. You are forgiven. You are pardoned. You are justified. And you have an eternal love relationship with God through Jesus Christ. What wonderful mercies. Nothing that we could possibly earn or deserve. In view of the mercies of God, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. What, what's a living sacrifice? We know that under the old covenant, animals were sacrificed. Spotless, spotless lambs were offered to God before his throne. A blood sacrifice that was a type, a picture of the sacrifice that the Lamb of God would one day make on a cross. And we know that every animal sacrificed was dead and remained dead. This type of sacrifice happens once in an animal's life. But a living sacrifice is not a dead one. It's not a once-in-your-life sacrifice, but it's ongoing. It's the type of sacrifice that is to occur each day as long as that person offering himself as a sacrifice is alive. So how can you and I be a living sacrifice in such a way that is pleasing to God? What does it mean for the Christian to be a living sacrifice? Well, I think of the words surrender or total commitment. When I come to realize what God has done for me, who he is and what he has promised and prepared for me in this new life with him, I choose to eagerly abandon anything and everything that gets in the way of obtaining that wonderful life that he's offering me. And listen, I know that there's life responsibilities that we can't put aside and abandon. But I think God wants those responsibilities, in a sense, to be the fuel for this kind of life instead of a distraction. Surrender is not a dirty word. So often the word surrender is associated with what we have to give up instead of what we get. Surrender is not some way to gain God's approval. You already have the full extent of his love and approval and acceptance by your faith in Christ. Let me say that one more time. You already have 
the full extent of God's love and approval and acceptance by your faith in Christ. It's not by what you do today and how you serve. It's not how you fail or mess up. It's not by the sins of your past or present or future. You have that all by your faith in Christ. The moment that you trust him as your savior, it's yours forever. Your choosing to be a living sacrifice is your way of saying thank you to God in light of all that he's done for you. We must not shy away from the fact that this is a command that demands obedience. To be a living sacrifice is Christ's demand for all his followers without exception. Total commitment to Christ is not reserved for pastors or preachers or evangelists or missionaries. Total commitment is God's call upon every Christian's life. Here's the thing. This is what I really want you to get this morning. Total commitment to Christ is the channel through which God's best and biggest blessings flow. Surrendering to the Lordship of Christ is what opens the door to actually experiencing the power and presence of Jesus in a supernatural and transformational way. It's what puts to death lukewarm, mediocre, boring, adventureless, risk-free Christianity. It's what puts flesh on and brings life to those dry bones. And to not go all in for Christ means that you are missing out on God's very best. Paul goes on and he says, to be this living sacrifice, he says, this is true worship. And simply, worship means to declare God's worth. Every Sunday we worship God, don't we? We sing words that are projected up on a screen, words that reflect God's worth, his greatness and goodness towards us. And, and our worship team does a wonderful job of leading us before God's throne every Sunday. For Paul to say that in view of God's mercies, we are to worship means that our worship is to be an informed worship. It's offered by Christians who have come to know and understand who God is and what he's done for them, what he has given them and what he demands from them in return. Worship is meant to engage not only our emotions, but all of who we are. It's to engage our minds, our intellect, and our reason. It's to engage our hearts, our passions, emotions, and desires. It's to engage our bodies, our physical expression, and our actions, and our activities. Our worship is to be all of life. It's to be a way of life. It's to be every moment of every day. It causes me to think of the prophet Isaiah who was given a vision of God on his heavenly throne and he saw the God of glory and beauty and splendor and power and holiness and Isaiah immediately was humbled and broken and he confessed and repented of his sin and then his heart was moved to a posture of worship through surrender. Listen to what he says, Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, here am I, send me. Isaiah saw God as he truly is, and his only response was to say, God, I'll go. I'll be that living sacrifice. Isaiah's enlarged view of God enlarged his heart to go all in for God. And that's what happens. The larger view of we, got, we have of God's greatness is the more that we want to go all in for him. 
How could we ever live as if he is worthy of anything less? Let's go on in verse 2, Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And here in this verse, Paul reveals the enemy of all in Christianity. I think as Christians, we often wonder why living the Christian life is so difficult. And we say to ourselves, I've made the decision to go all in for Christ many times, but I just seem to always end up back in this inconsistent spiritual mediocrity. I really truly believe that most Christians want to follow Christ with all their heart. But the problem is that we live in a toxic environment. A world influenced by the God of this age who has set things against our choosing total commitment to Christ. Where we have so many things vying for our attention and affections attempting to lure us away from a life sold out to Christ. In the NIV, it says stop conforming to the patterns of this world. And that word conformed means to be molded and shaped by it. Stop allowing the world to fashion you after its mold. The world system is designed by the evil one to woo your heart away from God and suck the life of Christ from your heart, to destroy your relationships with others and to lead you into the sin of idolatry where you live for the things of this world and not for Christ. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's life is not the Father, not of the Father, but is from the world. And this, this is such a subtle thing, uh, such a subtle thing that living in America just bombards us without even knowing, and it subtly draws us and woos us away from this life in Christ. The three things John reveals here, the lust of the flesh, it's, it's the passion to feel. It's the pursuit of pleasure, entertainment, recreation, and comfort. It's the lust of the eyes. It's, it's the passion to have, to, the pursuit of money and possessions, wanting bigger and better and more. And we envy and covet what others have, believing that attaining them will fulfill our deepest longings. And the pride of life, it's the passion to be, it's the pursuit of position or prestige, the desire to impress others by what we do and what we have. Your pursuits are more about your glory and fame and not the Lord's. And as we fill our lives up and busy ourselves in these pursuits, our life in God slowly fizzles and fades away. This is where the battle lines are drawn in the spiritual war. Jesus speaks to this and warns his followers of the reality of this. In Matthew 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And, and you can fill in the blank there. You can erase money. You can fill in the blank the, and, and put anything else. You cannot serve both God and fill in the blank. What is it currently in your life that you want and desire more than God. Whatever your answer is, realize that it's your idol, it's, it's your false God, and it's why you continue to struggle to surrender to Christ's lordship and why it seems so difficult to ever get any traction in growing and flourishing as a Christian. 
Jesus made it clear, you cannot have two masters in your life. He says, if I'm your master, you will love me and hate your idol. If your idol is your master controlling your life, you'll be devoted to it and you'll begin to despise me. The despising comes from being pulled in two directions. You know, I'm drawn to both. I, I desire both. I'm, I'm attracted to both. I actually want both. I want Christ and my idol. And you actually begin to feel like you're being torn in two, like you're being pulled apart at the seams. And when you finally give in to your idol, you're telling Jesus, listen, I've decided I really want my idol. I, I don't want to give it up. I, I love it too much. Jesus, just kind of leave me alone. Stop messing with me. Get out of the way so that I can pursue what I want. You love your idol, and you begin to despise Jesus because he's getting in your way of having what you really want. Have you ever been there? I have. I've been there a number of times. Let me assure you of one thing. Until you put the idol to death, you will continue to flounder and miss out on the passionate and full life Jesus promises you. Rather than allowing ourselves to be conformed by the world and its ways, we must, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that word transformed comes from the Greek word metamorphosis. Dividing that into two, meta means with and morphos means to change. And most commonly, it's the process we all know that where a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It's a process that happens from the inside out. The caterpillar climbs up a branch, attaches itself, a cocoon forms, and what happens inside is a radical change where that little slimy little caterpillar that crawls along the ground becomes this beautiful, colorful butterfly that no longer has to crawl for its existence but flies through the air. Genuine spiritual maturity is not the result of our external efforts. Our metamorphosis also happens inside of us and our hearts. It's a work of God that we cooperate with. When the Bible speaks of heart, it, it means the seat of our mind, emotions, and will. And when you fill your mind with the word of God through the sanctifying inner work of the spirit, the lies that we once believed are replaced by the beautiful truth of who God is and how much he loves us and the identity he's given us in Christ and the new purpose by which we are to live. And even though transformation and renewal is a work of God, we can't do it ourselves, it takes cooperation and actually a little bit of hard work on our part. Renewal comes to the person who sets out to make God's word a priority in their life. They're, they're reading it, they're studying it, they're meditating upon it, they're memorizing scripture, and they're applying it to their lives. If you think that metamorphosis is going to change by you hearing a sermon on a Sunday morning and then going away and never getting back into the word, it, it's never going to happen. Renewed minds begin to free us from our stinking thinking. It leads to sanctified emotions that begin to guide our will to follow God instead of the sinful ways of the world. The renewing of our minds sanctifies our emotions. It, it begins to change the way we think. It redirecting our will to surrender to the will of God where we experience that life to the full that he promises. And you know, his will may seem difficult and challenging at first. It quite often is. 
It may stretch you out of your comfort zone and at times seem kind of scary. But in the end, we hold on tightly to his word and his promises that his will is what always is going to be the very best for our lives. Let's go ahead and move on in verse 3 in chapter 12. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. The main point of verse 3 is, what, is that God commands us to think accurately about ourselves in light of our relationship with God in Christ and what his redemptive work has accomplished in us and for us. We no longer disparage ourselves, beating ourselves up over mistakes and failures and things we struggle with, the lies that the devil has planted in our minds and our hearts, that we're worthless and God doesn't really care about us or love us. We no longer give in to the pride and arrogance of believing that we are God's gift to the world. Anonymous writer wrote, humility is not thinking too highly of yourself or too low of yourself. Humility is not thinking of yourself at all. You can know this is something that needs to be transformed if you're constantly caught up in thinking about yourself and your life and your issues and your problems and what other people think of you. The faith that's spoken of here in context refers to the objective reality of who you are in Christ and what is true of you because of your new relationship with him. Let's move on in verses 4 and 5. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So here Paul is using the image of the human body to get the point across that the church is like our individual bodies. It has many different parts, and each one, each part of our body has a different function. But all the parts and members from one body, and each part is needed if the body is going to function in a healthy way. Paul builds on this in his first letter to Corinthians where he stresses that God is the one who sovereignly brings the members of the church body together. And he used three different words in in 1 Corinthians 12 where he says God has arranged the parts of the body just as he wanted them to be. God has combined the members of the body. God has appointed those in the body according to their gifts. Are you getting what he's saying here? So often in our consumer Christianity and our approach in America, we think that we're, we get to choose our churches and, and everybody you know, does that. But the reality of it is, is that God has combined. God has arranged. God has set it up exactly how he wants it. So you are sovereignly here because God knows you're a member of a body in this local body and you're a member that's needed. That you're a member that's important. That you have certain gifts and talents and skills that he's brought to this body to make it healthy and whole. And every part is important and needed to make the body whole. It has to be functioning. You have to be using your gifts and using your talents and skills so that this local church, IFC, is a healthy and whole church. You know, and, and too many people probably just sit there and say, oh, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't have nothing really to offer. I, I don't have anything worth giving things. You have a spiritual gift, or you have spiritual gifts. 
What a precious thing that God has given you the moment you trusted Christ. He dwelled you with his spirit, and then he gives you spiritual gifts, these precious things that he says, if you put them into action, you will glorify me, and you will touch other people's lives. So that tells us that you're needed, and that you're important. And that you have a God-given role in seeing this church become a healthy church. You were sovereignly led here by God because he has determined you are important to achieving his plan of making us a healthy church and accomplishing the mission that he's given us. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he says it like this. Chapter 4, verse 16, he says, From Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. A local church, which is the local representation of the body of Christ, cannot grow and build and be healthy unless each part of that body does its work. Then in our text in Romans, Paul says that if we are in Christ, we are in his body, inescapably joined to the other members of our local Christian community. We can no more separate from each other than a human arm can decide to go it alone apart from the torso and legs. I mean, that's in essence, you know, that's kind of a weird, freaky picture, you know, but imagine, you know, all of a sudden the arm decides he wants to go off with the body and you see it kind of scurrying along the sidewalk outside. That's that's a weird, strange picture, but that's the picture that we need to get. That if you're brought here because you're an arm and you're not functioning, then basically you're walking outside like an arm, like with not attached to the torso and the rest of the body, and we're absent of an arm. So neither you are going to be a healthy Christian, nor is the church going to be healthy. You need us as much as we need you. At IFC, we, we want to break the usual pattern of the American church. You know, there's, a, there's usually a statistic that they brought in the American church where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And we want to change that. We want to change that because we love you. We want to change that because we know in the depths of our hearts that as a Christian, you can't thrive and flourish unless you are serving God with your gifts. Go on to verses 6 through 8. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching in teaching, if exhorting in exhortation, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Every person, the moment they trust Christ as Savior, are indwelled by His Spirit who imparts spiritual gifts to each person and assists that person in using those gifts to bless the body as they sacrificially love and serve. What a special honor and privilege God bestows upon his children to have been blessed them with spiritual gifts intended to touch other people's lives. And how it must grieve him to see so many waste those precious gifts. The seven gifts listed here in Romans 12, they're not an exhausted list. But this list consists of the gifts that are considered kind of the practical gifts that are needed for so many of the ministries in the church to properly function. Before I briefly describe each gift, it's important for you to understand something. 
See, I have the gift of leadership and exhortation. And you hopefully have noticed those gifts coming out through my ministry. That doesn't mean that I can ignore the other gifts because while I'm gifted in those areas, God still commands me to serve others, to be merciful to others, to give faithfully and sacrificially, and to teach others the truth of the gospel. We may have certain gifts, but we are to continue to grow in all of those Christian virtues. So let's take a quick look at these seven spiritual gifts and and see if you identify which gifts you have. I want you to remember that spiritual gifts, they're endowed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to build up the church. They're not natural skills or talents. The first gift, prophecy, is one who is motivated to see the truth of God's will revealed to all people. It's mainly a proclamational gift, not a predictive one. To make known the truth of God through revealed scripture, not new revelations. He hates evil, has a strong desire to see justice, and often calls God's people to repentance. The gift of serving is one who is motivated to identify practical needs of people in the church and to meet them. It's a person who finds joy in serving when it frees others in their mind to do more important things. They have the tendency to frown upon upfront opportunities, preferring to work behind the scenes. The gift of teaching is one who is motivated to study, research, understand, and impart the truth of God's word with a desire to see growth in their hearers. They need to validate what is true and expose what is false, and they're a person who generally loves to read and study and grow in knowledge for the purpose of sharing it with others. The gift of exhortation is a person who's motivated to urge people to their full maturity in Christ, to give precise next steps of action and application for people towards spiritual maturity. The person is an encourager and looks for ways to lift people's spirits and eyes towards Christ. The gift of giving, that person's motivated to give from all of their resources to further the work of God. They give faithfully and sacrificially to the church, and they look for needs and causes and ministry works that arise where they can be helped through their financial giving. They have a desire to earn more so that they can give more. There's a gift of leadership, which also can be termed administration in a different form and function, and it's a person who's motivated by envisioning the will of God and working with people and resources to achieve it. They have an ability to capture a vision of God's preferred future, breaking down major goals into smaller achievable tasks and sending out the clarion call for people to follow them as they follow Christ. People tend to look to you for guidance and desire to follow your lead. And finally, there's a gift of mercy that it's a person who naturally finds themselves drawn to hurting people in the hopes of bringing comfort and support. You, you have a desire to remove the causes of the hurt rather than for them to look at the benefits from them. You go out of your way to minister to the down and hurting. You tend to attract people who are having mental and emotional distress. You're known as a sensitive, caring, empathetic, and kind person. I present those gifts to you this morning because I really want you to try to understand what your gifts are. And, and so many of you have walked with Christ for so long, you, I'm sure you already probably know what your gifts are. But we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. And during the response time, I'm going to ask you now just to spend some time alone with the Lord. Ask him, you know, where am I at in, the, in, in 
pursuing you and fulfilling those longings the way that you've designed? You know, how, how am I connecting with you in deep relationship? How am I connecting to the body of Christ and, and finding that need of belonging um, and then significance? Am I using my gifts and what you've given me to go all in in serving for the glory of the kingdom? I want to ask you to spend that time, a few minutes now, doing that in prayer before the Lord. And then I'm going to come back up and actually I put together a sheet of seven different ministries in our church that actually have needs. And I'm going to come up and share specifically a little description of those ministries. And then I'm going to introduce the leader. And at the end of the service today, those leaders are going to be standing in the back. And if you're feeling God tugging your heart, I want you to go and talk with one of those leaders. And if you feel, you know, that I really need to sign up for something and I want to begin to help this church and I want to use my gifts and I want to see this church become more healthy because of that, talk with them and tell them, hey, you know what? I think God's speaking to me about joining your team. Okay, everybody understand kind of where we're going with this? So let's go ahead and spend some time in quiet with the Lord and then I'll come back and share with you about those ministries.